Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 U.S. election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So welcome to this very special episode of Democratically 2020, framed as the choice. Um, in this episode, I'm joined by Skylar Baker-Jordan, friend of the pod and much-treasured podcast guest. He'll say hello, Skylar. Why? To, to get through. And so up front, I guess that's the one thing I want to say is there's so much with this man that you could talk about that we just don't have time. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting uh, <laughs> studying Donald Trump's life in depth. Um, you know, it has been emotionally and spiritually taxing. But uh, <laughs> on the one hand, uh, you know, there's that. But on the other hand, no one can deny that this man has lived a very interesting life. He's had a lot of interesting experiences. He's done a lot of interesting things. You know, interesting doesn't necessarily confer a value judgment of whether those things are good or bad. You can make your own decisions. And if you've read my writing, you know where I stand. But um, I, I think that much that this man has done, and I, I'm sure the same is true for Joe Biden, that we're only able to scratch the surface in, you know, an hour-long podcast yeah, totally true. There's I mean, there's so much information out there about Donald Trump. Yeah, there's so much to say about both of these men because they both had. I think we were you and I were saying this the other day when we were chatting. Both of these men have been at the very much in the public eye for an incredibly long time, and both of them became quite famous very young, right? And for very different reasons, and and have been kind of notable ever since. So there's just a lot of like substance to cover, you know, in, in both cases, even though they're in very different walks of life. So that's one of the things they actually kind of have in common. There was a couple of other interesting things that I noted, which I'll probably touch on as we go through that, like, were surprising things that these two men slightly had in common that you wouldn't expect. What? Um, so when I was doing my research, I, I like had to look around for a lot of different sources because I wasn't really happy with any of the the books that I was looking at for Joe Biden. But my one of my favorite books that I looked at was um, What It Takes, which is the brilliant kind of political book by, uh, I think Ben Kramer is his name, um, that just looks at all of the different candidates that ran in the 1988 race. And that gave me so much like color and life about Biden's story. What were, what were your favorite resources for your Trump research? Well, uh, the book that really gave me the best idea of who Donald Trump was, was one by David Gate. David K. Johnston uh, called The Making of Donald Trump, which he wrote in 2016. Um, David K. Johnston is not a political journalist. He's a business journalist. Uh, he has a Pulitzer Prize. He spent many years writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer, among other publications. And he had 30 years worth of uh, notes and research and documents and clippings on Donald Trump, having you know, reported on him as part of his job with the Philadelphia Inquirer, which obviously that remit would include New Jersey, crucially Atlantic City, where Donald Trump uh, made and lost quite a bit of money, as have many people, I suppose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, David Cage has a wealth of information lying around. I mean, it, it, it's probably... Uh, you know, boxes and boxes full of press clippings going back 30 years, you know, things that I think most reporters, political reporters never would have kept because politicians come and go so much. But Donald Trump was such a fixture in Atlantic City for so long. Um, so so that was really impressive. And then, um, I mean, there were 
others that were really interesting. Um, the New York New York Magazine, of course, has covered Donald Trump quite mm. a bit over the years, and so they had some great exposés on uh, business dealings in Azerbaijan. Uh, the, the Guardian did everything back in 2015, 2016, and then you know just. Honestly, the best record for figuring out Donald Trump is kind of Donald Trump himself. So there's a lot of interviews and, mm. uh, you know, YouTube videos going back 40 years of this man talking about, you know, how great he is. Right. Well, let's let's kick off with that then. Should we go straight into it? Because the mm-hmm. first year we're going to look at um, is a year that neither you nor I were on this earth. <laughs> 1973, <laughs> um, which is the year before I was born, because I'm a little older than you are, but you are not even a gleam in the milkman's eye at this point, I think. Um, 1973 no. was, a, was, a, was a really interesting year for both of our men. Um, so how do you want to do this? Do you want to go first or shall I go first? I'm happy either way. Um, I'll let you go first. Okay. Great. Well, I'm glad to go first because actually I'm chomping at the bit to tell you about all the things I learned about Joe Biden um, and the year. So so here's what was happening to Joe Biden in the year 1973. And you may have heard some of some of the basic facts of this. Um, you know, he talks about it quite openly on the campaign trail. 1973 was the year Joe Biden was inaugurated into the Senate at the age of 29. He was the fifth youngest senator ever to be. Um, uh, well, he, he was well, he was 30 when he was uh, uh, inaugurated. He was elected at the age of 29, the fifth youngest senator ever, and kind of legally as young as you can be when you're a senator to be a senator, because <laughs> the Constitution requires a 30, uh, 30, a minimum age of 30. Um, I found out, by the way, weird side note, that there have been several senators who have been inaugurated younger than 30. And I'm unclear, even though that was against the Constitution. So I'm unclear on how that happened. But that was like the 19th century was weird. Um, yes. So he was inaugurated on the 5th of January, but obviously what would you ex- what you would expect to be a spectacular joyous day in the life of a young senator was actually a time of immense trauma and pain for him because famously earlier like late last the previous year in fact while she was driving to buy their Christmas tree his wife got into a fatal car accident she died, as did their infant daughter and his two sons, Hunter and Biden, um, oh, sorry, Hunter and uh, Bo, uh, were both critically injured and in hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, it's just the most heartrending story that I can imagine. Um, his daughter, Naomi, um, is gone. His wife is gone. And Biden, at the time he takes office, is basically hardly able to tear himself away from his son's um, his son's hospital bed, and it's it's unclear, um, you know, whether they will fully recover at all. Um, and that's why Joe Biden's inauguration into public life was was setting the scene for an entire career um, and a, a crucial decision that he made because of these circumstances, which was to. Um, to commute effectively um, because his children were in hospital and needed their father so desperately. He decided rather than moving to Washington or moving his family to Washington, that he would come home every night, a 90 minute journey on the Amtrak. And that's why he became kind of Amtrak Joe. Um, and, you know, that so that was the that kind of set up the, the story of his life where what the rest of his career was going to be from there on was he was going to be that kind of a senator, the kind of senator who came home every night. And, um, you know, he was just 
really struggling at this time in his history. Um, he's spoken pretty openly about the fact he was, um, he considered suicide. I think he has said that, you know, if, if it were not that his boys needed him so much, he's not sure he would have been able to make it out um, of this, this dark, dark time in history. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what people really focus on. Um, and, and understandably that's, you know, it was a formative transitional, like absolutely life altering event as it would be for any human being. And I think it kind of overshadows another thing about this time that I think is really interesting, which is how did he get there in the first place? <laughs> like how, how did this 29 year old kid effectively, um, from, you know, from nowhere, from, uh, you know, a middle-class family in Delaware, get himself elected into the Senate, um, and so I just dug in a little bit to kind of what his childhood was like and what his young, his upbringing was like and kind of how he got where he got, where he got. And the bottom line is that like Joe Biden has been a very high energy guy all his life, like super ambitious, really dynamic. I think when we hear about his early stutter and the problems that he had and how he was bullied for his stuttering, you might make the mistake of believing that perhaps he was shy or, or nervous or introverted, but actually he was a super outgoing kid. And there are stories of him like back in Scranton, he was a little bit of a gang leader. Like he used to, he used to take bets about really doing daring and dangerous things. There's a story about him like taking a dare to to run under the wheels of a of a moving dump truck and like lie down under the axle and let the let the dump truck ride over him like he was getting in a lot of trouble (laughs) and um just yeah like crazy stuff and um you know and his home life was fascinating like he was living with in scranton you know famously um you know it wasn't just his nuclear family he was living all his you know young adulthood like childhood he was living with a wider family. His grandparents were in the same house, his Aunt Gertie, his Uncle Edwin, who was a stutterer himself and was a little bit of a, a lost soul. Um, so there was this wide extended family. And even when they moved to Delaware, um, his uh, you know extended family, a lot of them came with him, like his Uncle Edmund, Edwin and Aunt Gertie wound up living with him in Delaware as well. So there was a, you know, like really rich family life, but also a lot of challenges that they had going. And yet... Um, Joe Biden seems to have just been fiercely determined, not particularly academic, but just fiercely determined from a very young age. Um, and there's a story that that I read in the book about him, like standing outside in the rose garden of his uh, the, his mom's rose garden in Delaware, and having read about the Greek uh, the Greek orator Demosthenes. He was trying to imitate him by putting rocks in his mouth and reading the pages of books over and over again until he could read them clearly because he was trying to overcome his stutter. And he just like would stand out there for hours until it got dark and then he would keep doing it with a flashlight, just like this fierce determination. And that's why he decided to run for Senate. He was just a city councilor at that point. It's not even clear that he would have been reelected if he'd had to run again for city council because, um, you know, the seat that he was in was, I think the, the, the districts had changed and it was a more Republican leaning district. So he just took this like punt, basically. He was like, I think I can win the Senate and he'll just leap straight to it. So he decided to directly challenge a guy called Kale Boggs who was a very well-established and frankly well-loved Republican senator in Delaware. Um, He was really popular and no other Democrat wanted to run, which is why this effectively kid straight out of the city council wound up running for the race as the only Democrat who wanted to take take him on. And it became a real race about youth. It was a youth-focused race. Like his message was, 
time to hand over to a new generation. One thing I hadn't realized was the year that Biden got elected was the first year 18-year-olds could vote because the constitutional amendment to allow 18-year-olds the franchise had just passed in 1971, I think. So this was the first senatorial election where that had been implemented. And so he made it a generational change election. Um, and that's, you know, that's how he got there. And it was just like every, every, every aspect of his story is remarkable up until this point. Just crazy. So what was Donald Trump doing? Well, <laughs> um, first of all, something you said really struck me because I think that both of these men share that. Um, Donald Trump was not an academic man either, um, but he was incredibly ambitious. And that was evident from a very early age. Um, we're kind of talking about 1973 as sort of the pivotal year here, but to really sort of understand what was going on with Donald Trump, I'm actually going to start um, just a little bit before that um, in 1971, which is when he made one of what I think is the most important moves of his life, and he moved to Manhattan. He left Queens and he went to Manhattan. Um, he was trying to sort of leave his quote-unquote bridge and tunnel pass behind. Um, and Manhattan became sort of indelibly linked to the aura and mythos of Donald Trump, even if Manhattan itself never fully accepted him as one of his own, by which I mean sort of the high society of Manhattan. Um, th this move was, was pivotal for a number of reasons, um, not just because it sort of bolstered his own self-image and, and, and sort of the, the image he wanted to portray, but it also introduced him to a lot of people who would be pivotal in his life, one of them being Roy Cohen. Uh, Roy Cohen had been McCarthy's lawyer during the uh, Senate hearings in the 1950s. Um, he was, uh, by all accounts, a man uh, with some very, very seedy dealings and uh, known connections to the mafia. And Roy Cohen was, uh, became almost a, a, a sort of uh, Rasputin-esque figure to Donald Trump, you know, sort of this sort of the Mac and, you know, uh, sort of scheming, um, but paternal figure, somebody who could point Trump in the right direction in business and in life. And one of the things that he did was, um, really, really get Trump to go on the attack. He is the one who sort of convinced Trump, uh, along with his father, to to attack, attack, attack. And and it's worked for Trump to a degree. Um, now, Trump had a lot of experience with CD figures, and I can't go into all of them. But one thing that did stick out to me is a quote he said in 2004 at a museum of television and radio in Los Angeles. He was being interviewed for The Apprentice. And he said, quote, you know, mobsters don't like, as they're talking to me, having cameras all over the room. It would pay, play well on television, but it doesn't play well with them, unquote. And that's interesting because it's kind of Trump admitting that he worked with the mafia. Yeah. Um, right. And that, that was happening a lot in the 1970s. Now, 1973 is pivotal to Donald Trump because in 1972, Federal authorities began a series of uh, field tests, quote unquote, for compliance of the Fair Housing Act. Now, the Fair Housing Act had only been passed about three or four years before that. Um, and it was to end racial discrimination in housing. So what they would do is they would send black tenants in um, to ask about renting an apartment and see if they were rejected. And when they invariably were, they would then send a white tenant in 
with the same credentials. So same job, same income, all of that uh, to see if they would rent. And sure enough, Donald Trump and his father were denying black tenants um, and or at least they were alleged tenants and uh, renting to white people. So uh, it's important to note that, you know, the Trumps did rent to racial minorities, uh, but the, the, the complaint that the federal government had was that they were segregating those minorities into specific buildings. Um, so Trump sought advice from Roy Cohen, as he would throughout the years until Cohen's death, and, and Cohen told him to fight. Uh, that was actually against the prevailing wisdom of these cases. Most people who found themselves in breach of the Fair Housing Act tried to settle with the government as quickly as possible. Trump didn't, and so he fought it. He held a press conference in the New York Hilton, and he accused the Justice Department of making up charges to force him to rent to people on welfare. Um, and he said that this wasn't about race. This was about renting to people on welfare. He didn't want to do that. Um, and that was interesting to me because it sort of had echoes of his Save the Suburbs campaign in 2020. And you can see kind of this uh, sort of uh, antipathy towards low-income housing uh, sort of beginning right here in 1972, 1973. Uh, so Trump countersued. Um, he had Cohen file a lawsuit for $100 million in damages from the government. Um, that uh, was eventually uh, settled. Trump did not end up paying anything. The government, as far as we know, did not pay him. Um, but he did have to enter into a period of, I think, two years worth of government oversight into his rentals. Um, what we know is uh, after that, the government filed new complaints alleging the behavior resumed when the oversight ended and he went back to discriminating against Black tenants. That is the allegation. Um, but Trump was never prosecuted for this, um, uh, or he was never convicted of it, rather. And he kind of moved on. But this sort of um, history of alleged or perceived racism, and I'm saying that, you know, sort of to cover my own butt here, um, you can make your own inferences to whether this was actual racism. Uh, this has a long history in, in Trump's family. Um, and I think to really understand who Donald Trump is, you have to go back, not even to his father, but to We're going to leave 1972 and we're going to almost a hundred years. We're gonna go back to the 1880s, which is when uh, Friedrich Trump, uh, fled Germany to avoid military service. Now, Friedrich was only 16. He came to America um, and he ended up in Seattle where he ran a restaurant that might have doubled as a brothel. We're not sure there's some evidence <laughs> to suggest that. Um, he became a citizen in 1892, but um, he did lie about his age and uh, said he had been here longer than he had. So uh, there was some immigration fraud going on. Um, and then uh, Friedrich Trump died uh, uh, a little bit later, but first he went back to Germany where he uh, <laughs> promptly expelled uh, because he had dodged the draft. Um, and so he had to come back to America. Um, so it was, uh, it was quite interesting. Um, now, Trump's grandfather died in 1918, um, and he died in the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, so, you know, there's this whole History, sort of man, it repeats, doesn't it? <laughs> I was going to say there's this whole meme about, you know, there's there's always a tweet. Well, yeah. there's always there's always a Trump. Like, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's always something in the family history that just, you know, speaks to the moment. And it's really fascinating. 
Now, Trump's father uh, was born in Bavaria, but came to New York City as a baby, again, because his father had been expelled from Germany. Um, by all accounts, had a pretty solidly working class upbringing. Um, with his mother, he inherited his father's business when he was only the age of 12. Uh, there were some questions to the legalities of him working because he was so young, but nothing you know, too unseemly for the time. Uh, but what's interesting, and when we start to see sort of where the issue of race comes into conflict with the Trump family, he was arrested at 21 um, for a brawl between uh, the police and the KKK. Now, he was not charged, um, but this sort of started at what some family members, including Mary Trump, who is Donald Trump's niece, and line of racism from, from Fred Trump Sr., um, apparently, according to Mary Trump, Fred Trump Sr. would slur any black residents looking to run for him as uh, die Schwarze, which uh, is German for the black one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, famously, in 1950, uh, Woody Guthrie, who is sort of best known for the folk song, This Land is Your Land, he wrote a song called um, Old Man Trump, and it is all about Fred Trump's racism. Wow. Um, and so that is sort of how well known uh, the sort of housing discrimination that the Trumps are alleged to have participated in was even back in the 1950s. Um, so that's kind of uh, a through line, uh, I think, of uh, the Donald Trump story. Now, by the 1920s, uh, Trump's father was building houses in Queens. That's the start of the Trump real estate empire. And in uh, 1946, Donald Trump was born. Um, now, Donald Trump uh, would go to work sites with his father, learning the family business. He was seen as the heir apparent because it was evident from an early age that the oldest child, Fred Jr., had no interest in inheriting the family business. Um, and Fred, Fred Trump Sr. Um, wasn't too thrilled with this. And according to Mary Trump, he, he bullied her father um, over that. Um, this was pretty indicative of the family. If you listen to people and you sort of read up on Donald Trump, uh, you'll learn that he he was kind of accused of bullying as a child as well. Um, in The Art of the Deal, Trump actually brags about punching his second grade music teacher. Um, we don't know if that's a true story or not, but um, he does he does brag about it. Um, and Jeez. other children that grew up around him in the neighborhood say that he was known for uh, throwing uh, rocks at children who were in playpens. Um, and this sort of was a family uh, endeavor because while Fred Trump Sr. was never physically abusive as far as I can tell, and as far as I think even Mary Trump would acknowledge, um, he was somebody who she says, quote, financial worth was the same as self-worth. Monetary value was human life, unquote. And so this was a man who um, didn't need to be physically abusive because he could be so emotionally abusive. Um, he was a very strict father. He forbid snacking between meals. Um, he didn't let his daughters wear lipstick. Um, and those were just two of the many, many rules that the Trump children had to live by. Um, but Donald Trump still managed to get into a fair amount of trouble, even with those rules. And so he was sent to the New York Military Academy at the age of 13. Um, now, it's here that a lot of people sort of think the New York Military Academy would be like a, a bad thing for Donald Trump, but it seems to have been pretty good for him. Um, there was lots of bullying at the New York Military Academy, according to sort of classmates who were there with him at the time. But Donald Trump is not remembered as having bullied anyone at the mm. New York Military Academy, um, and he's not remembered as having been bullied. Um, 
in fact, uh, one former classmate, Mike Pitcall, uh, has said, quote, he was a decent guy. Huh. Yeah. There you uh, go. So, you know, it seems like it might have sort of corrected some of the the behavior of his childhood that I've read about. Um, but he, he graduated and then he went to Fordham University in New York before transferring in his junior year to the University of Pennsylvania, which he graduated from in 1968. Um, again, no one really remembers Trump as being a standout student here um, one way or the other. Um, he sort of flew under the radar. Um, but one thing that is worth noting is Trump really likes to brag about having attended uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and he always insinuates that he went to the Wharton Graduate School, which he did not. He has an undergraduate degree in economics, um, but not a master's degree from the prestigious business school that he's always citing. Um, mm, interesting. So, yes. So he, but he did go to the University of Pennsylvania. He did graduate. And in 1968, uh, he moved back to uh, New York which is when he began working for his father. And he started out managing middle-class properties in Staten Island, Brooklyn, Queens. Um, and by this time though, Trump was doing pretty well for himself. He was receiving a million tax gifts from his father, according to the New York Times. This was a story they ran in 2018. And in 1968, uh, he received a deferment for the draft. Now that one was for college. Um, you know, Students in the Vietnam era could receive a deferment so that they could finish their degrees. Uh, and, and Trump did that. Um, but in 1972, he was permanently disqualified. Um, and this is all sort of confusing to us because in 1966, he was deemed fit for service. So one kind of wonders what changed then. Uh, Donald Trump will tell you that there were bone spurs, that he was diagnosed, and that that, that kept him out of the draft. Um, you know, there was a story in the New York Times in 2018, though, um, where the daughters of Larry Bronstein, who was a podiatrist who rented from Trump Sr., so Donald Trump's father, said that he diagnosed Trump with bone spurs as a favor to Fred Trump Sr. so that Donald would not be drafted. Uh, but the crucial thing about this is that they have produced no evidence of this. Hmm. So we don't know the truth, um, but we do know that Donald Trump did receive it. Um, so he went to work for his father, where by all means, he had a ferocious work ethic. Uh, that's what The Guardian said in a 2016 profile. And if The Guardian's telling you something positive about Donald Trump, it must be true. Um, so Trump said, said that he would rise at 5 a.m. each day. He would, you know, hunker down, really study the real estate business. He was really eager to learn from his father. Um, but he was also interested in his own ventures, and one of them was entertainment. And in 1970, Trump made one of his earliest forays into the entertainment industry when he uh, invested $1,000 forgotten Broadway show called Paris is Out. Um, the show it did okay, um, sort of middling reviews, middling returns, but um, it was Trump's first uh, venture into the entertainment industry, and he, he loved it. He loved seeing his name as a producer on the show. And so that sort of becomes important later in the Donald Trump story. <laughs> um, <laughs> Entertainment this, might come back again. It, it just might. Um, yeah. But at this point, though, he's much more interested in business um, and in the real estate business in particular. And in 1971, uh, he becomes the president of Elizabeth Trump and Son which was the company that his father had. Um, his father remained a CEO, but Trump became president, and he promptly renamed it the Trump Organization. Wow. 
So, um, Skylar, there's one, speaking of similarities between these two men, there's one thing that that is true for both of them um, that I didn't mention in my recitation, but both of them did not serve in Vietnam. Um, now, Biden seems to have very legitimately um, been been ruled unfit for service because he has a lifelong condition of asthma. Um, and that's why he didn't go. But he also, I mean, Biden talks in a little bit in one of his biographies, he talks about the fact that, you know, he didn't really have a, a 1960s counterculture lifestyle either, right? Like he was in college, he talks about the fact that, you know, he was wearing a suit and tie in, in his classes, which was kind of common earlier in the 60s, but not so much, um, you know, by the time he was there. And um, I think, you know, he just didn't really, you know, he didn't really fit in with the countercultural revolution, but equally he didn't, you know, wasn't drafted, wasn't sent to Vietnam. He was just really focused on his political career and getting into public service as quickly as possible. And then Trump, you know, basically, had no interest in serving the public in any way whatsoever. So he was, uh, he was opting out. So both of them didn't really live what we think of as a, like the, the, the image of the 1960s. Well, yeah, I think that it's absolutely true that neither of them was at the Haight-Ashbury with, uh, Janice Joplin, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, this, these, these are not two men who, um, really in, embraced or embodied, uh, the zeitgeist of the era. These were two men who, were really products, I think, of the 1980s uh, before being a product of the 1980s was cool. They were yuppies before yuppies were cool. And, um, you know, I think that, but I also think that it's important to note that a lot of people of this generation, the vast majority of them weren't involved in sort of the countercultural movement. Mm. Um, You know, we, we hold up, I think there's this tendency in history to look at something and look at sort of the things that we remember as being definitive of the era as being the, the norm when really yep. they were the exception. Totally. And so, you know, most Americans of the age would not have been hippies and would have been somewhere closer to what Donald Trump uh, or Joe Biden uh, were in sort of their demeanor and their beliefs. Um, by all accounts, neither of these men were radicals one way or the other. You know, we sort of think as Donald Trump as being this extreme sort of right-wing figure now, but uh, there's no indication of at this time that he was anything other than, you know, maybe a a sort of cruel businessman, a discriminatory businessman, but there's no evidence that he was sort of any sort of political inclinations whatsoever. He just wanted to make a lot of money. Yeah. And it's worth saying that the one, you know, although I said he didn't, he wasn't necessarily affected by a lot of the 60s countercultural movement. The one exception to that um, that shows up in Joe Biden's biography is he was very moved by the civil rights movement. And although he wasn't kind of on the front line of some of these marches, he did have, he did follow the civil rights movement closely. And there was one incident where um, I think he and his, his fellow kind of football team members, um, you know, helped to desegregate um, a local a local restaurant that was discriminating against um, a young black person in their community that they knew. So, you know, he was oh, wow. paying attention to these things and kind of watching them closely. And, you know, as a as a young man was trying to sort of emulate that example where he could. So that's that's one kind of philosophical difference that I think they clearly had where, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump took the first opportunity he could to discriminate against African-Americans. Joe Biden was taking the first opportunity he could to, to intervene on their behalf so um very different cultural context there 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, because uh, there's no indication in anything that I've read, um, either researching for this or over the years, that Donald Trump had any sort of awareness of the wider world outside of New York City at this time. Um, He was very, very hyper-local in his interests, um, and other than uh, Fred Trump having to go to Washington, D.C. once um, uh, to testify before Congress in the 1950s, there's no indication that any of the Trumps – I'm sure they did travel, but it, it registers as so little. They, they are very New York-focused. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting right. contrast. Shall we fast forward on to the, the year 1991? Yes. Diddly-doo, diddly-doo, diddly-doo. Here we go. Moving in time. Fast forward. Um, so I'll, shall I do Biden again first? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's hear so, more about what Uncle Joe's up to. What's you up to, Uncle Joe? So in 1991, um, Joe Biden has settled into his groove, right? He is, he's, he's been in the Senate. He's been doing work there. Um, he's famously the chair of the Judiciary Committee, which is a really high-profile position that he fought hard to get um, and which he's proud to have. Now, by 1991, he's come off of a previous um, uh, big moment in the Judiciary Committee um, in 1998, while he was running for president, there were the Bork hearings, um, Robert Bork, um, where um, Bork was a very conservative justice um, that Biden succeeded in getting defeated um, in, in, in the Senate. So he was um, feeling really good about his work in the Judiciary Committee for that, but it was a very high-stress moment. And little do you know, a few years later, along comes the Clarence Thomas nomination hearings. And if you know anything about the Clarence Thomas nomination hearings, you know that the name that's about to come up in my mouth is Anita Hill. Um, Anita Hill had worked with Clarence Thomas um, in two positions, um, most uh, most recently at the um, at the Equal Opportunities Commission, the EEOC, and she accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment um, over over a number of years. And although she didn't initially want to testify, um, she did put that information forward. It all sounds really familiar to me in terms of a more recent supreme court hearing that we've been through like the parallels between the the hill hearing and the um and the kavanaugh hearings are are really deep um she didn't necessarily want to testify initially but eventually um would you know did agree to testify and joe biden was in charge of that hearing and it was not a great moment for (laughs) for america (laughs) necessarily and I think, you know, you have to take your mind back to what was going on. You know, where was where was the country at that point in time in terms of our understanding of the existence of sexual harassment in the workplace? I think we were in a pretty infantile phase of development um, at that point. Um, so Biden, Biden was faced with a really challenging task, which is trying to run these hearings and figure out a way to do it that would be fair um, to everyone concerned. And I think, you know, Anita Hill um, wound up in a very, very uncomfortable position. And, you know, so there were three other witnesses who, who, who came forward and expressed their willingness to testify that Clarence Thomas had, had behaved similarly towards them. Um, but for whatever reason... 
those women were never called to testify, which meant that um, the hearing wound up looking very much like a he said, she said competition between Hill and Thomas. And the, you know, reportedly the reason why those three other women never testified was that Joe Biden made a deal with the Republicans on the committee, um, some sort of, you know, some sort of covert, covert deal, not, not to try and harm Hill in any way, shape or form, but just, he was trying to figure out how to, a way to run the committee well. But as a result of that, this he said, she said situation, it wound up turning into basically a hearing on Hill's credibility. And I remember, um, I was old enough to remember in 1991, these hearings taking place. And I remember watching some of it on TV and, and I was reading about Orrin Hatch's questioning. I specifically remember Orrin Hatch questioning Hill, because I remember at the time I was a teenager and I just found it so offensive, the questions he was asking her. And he would read out like, you know, she, she, Hill had claimed things like that, um, that Thomas had repeatedly asked her out, sexually propositioned her. She'd said things like um, that, you know, he, he said that he came to her desk and said, who has put pubic hair on my Coke holding up her Coke can? which is just gross. And Orrin Hatch went out and found a novel in which somebody used a similar quote and like asked Hill if she'd just made that up based on this novel. And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It was just really weird and gross and just very uncomfortable to watch. Um, And the repercussions of this hearing were actually really pretty vast for American women because in the next congressional cycle, a lot of women then stepped forward for office. And the next congressional cycle became famous as being the year of the women because so many women having watched that hearing had a really... A, a reaction, which again feels really familiar now, of like women have to be represented better. Like that, we're not, we're, like the men who are running these hearings do not understand our lived experience, and so um, it wound up changing the way the whole country thought about sexual harassment, including Joe Biden, who um, you know seems to have put a lot of thought into women's experiences after this hearing. Um, And in fact, you know, shortly after that, just a few years after that, he became the lead sponsor of the Violence Against Women Act, which um, strengthened protection for women, including women protections against sexual harassment. So he seems to have really um, thought long and hard about that. And, you know, his... So the 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 Joe Biden Anita Hill relationship is a fascinating story. Anita Hill is voting for Joe Biden. This yeah, year. it sounds like it. Yeah, no. It sounds like it, it sounds like it was a pivotal moment in his political career. Yeah, it was a political moment. It, like I think it changed a lot of things for him, for better or for worse. But I certainly think it changed his thinking a lot, and it made him think differently and think more, probably just more about women. Um, so I think that was a that was a tough time, <laughs> um, a, a challenging hearing for him. I think there's a lot of things that he would do differently moving forward from it, um, but. But but just a big moment for the country and 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 kind of a real awakening. And it just feels really resonant to me that that year feels a lot like the Kavanaugh hearing feels very resonant. The general kind of anxiety of women to have their voices better heard and better understood by the men in power um, feels really resonant. So there's a lot going on there. Um, I want to just roll back a few years so so 1991 um was a pivotal year because of this 
role that Biden had in the Judiciary Committee. Um, as I mentioned, back in 1988, he was he dealt with the, the the Bork hearings. The Bork hearings were happening at a time when there was there was a hell of a lot going on in Joe Biden's life at that time, and all of the things that happened to him in '88 um, influenced his life a lot too. Um, so so one of the things I want to talk about is obviously he was running for president in 1988, and. But one of the things that I haven't seen reported very much is very shortly after he dropped out of his presidential race following um, plagiarism allegations, which I'll come on to in a second, Joe Biden throughout his presidential campaign had been suffering crippling headaches. And it came out very shortly, I think February of of 1988. Um, it transpired the reason he was having these crippling headaches is he was he, he was suffering near fatal brain aneurysms. He had two serious brain aneurysms. Uh, the second of which re- required him to be to receive a, a a surgical treatment, which was about was he was given about 50-50 odds of surviving, and. Even with the survival wow. odds he was given, he was told that the chances that he would ever be at full mental capacity again were very slim. And they did this operation. He went into it fairly calm. I mean, I think considering you know the crippling, <laughs> the crippling potential here. Um, shortly afterwards, he he was physically deformed. His face was. Um, like the muscles in his face were not working properly and it was unclear if that would ever recover itself. He took seven months off of his time in the, of his career in the Senate to recover from this. And it's, you know, it was kind of the only time in his entire life when the man was not working full tilt. Um, he talks about the seven months that he was off as being the only time he remembers being arrested in his adult life. <laughs> um, because he, you know, Jill Biden basically imposed a imposed a no visits rule on him and said nobody can come in, like nobody can see him. He has to stay home. He has to rest. Um, and in fact, the first person, this is a little anecdote, but the first person to actually see him after his uh, after this, you know, weeks and weeks after the surgery was um, was Ted Kennedy, who, who insisted upon coming in. So he was the first person to 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 break that rule. Um, but so, you know, he was he was, you know, had a near fatal incident. Um, the headaches of that were crippling him during both the Bork confirmation hearing and his presidential run. And so he was just not in a good place at that time in history. And, um, you know, so the 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 plagiarism allegations that we'll talk about in a second. So basically what happened was he was, again, going full tilt. He was managing the Bork hearing, which is taking up basically more than a full time job at the same time he was running for president. And he just was shortcutting a lot of things. And he had watched the Neil Kinnock, a video of labor politician Neil Kinnock giving a speech over and over again because Biden apparently was very moved by Kinnock's way of telling his story. And he was telling all his staff, this is the way we need to talk about things. Kinnock talked about his personal experience as the son of a coal miner, um, as the first in his family to go to college. Now, neither of those things were true of Joe Biden, but Biden liked Kinnock's way of articulating it. And he was using that story attributed to Neil Kinnock in his stump speech. It was part of his stump speech that he would say, as the British Labour politician Neil Kinnock says, and then he would quote Kinnock at length. But then there came a debate, a presidential debate, in the midst of the Bork hearing, in the midst of him having these crippling headaches, and he repeated the quote 
but he failed to attribute it to Kinnick. Oh. Which was the fr- like so, and it wasn't the first time he'd used it. It was just the first time he'd used it, and he hadn't put the attribution in. Now, interesting story. Do you know who was the person who broke that as a story and first came to them and said, "Can you justify this? Why haven't you attributed these quotes properly?" I do not. It was Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. Really? Yeah. <laughs> She's still with us. <laughs> she is still at it. She is still at it. Um, so yeah, so that that's the thing. I mean, so so Biden has had, I mean, that was a a really troubling trial trial filled um, couple of years in his life, and so I think that just informed my understanding that by 1991, when he went into the Anita Hill hearing, he kind of he was feeling like he was back in stride, right? Like he's back. He'd been very ill. He'd had a terrible um, experience on the campaign trail. Um, he. You know, the Bork hearing was was considered a triumph, but it was also a very stressful triumph for him. Um, so they managed to defeat Bork's nomination purely on ideological grounds. And I think it's really interesting to look at the Bork hearing in comparison to the the the, the Clarence Thomas hearing in that they made no allegations of Robert Bork not being fit for the for the role, not being qualified um, or being personally um unfit in any respect the pure argument that biden made and he made it like very directly is this man is ideologically unfit for the for the role he is too extreme and he went out there's a there's a great passage about a speech he gave to the american bar association where like he spoke for an hour and a half to the american bar association but you know at first they were getting really restless but then he came on to talk about bork and he just went through line by line by line over the past 30 years of American political history, if Bork had been on the court, this judgment would have been different. This judgment would have been different. He just showed to these lawyers all the things that Bork would have ruled against based on his legal scholarship and his legal theories and really got people on side. And he did the same for the Senate. It was this real effort of like line by line, person by person, advocacy against Bork's nomination on purely the grounds that his judicial theories were too extreme. Whereas obviously the the Clarence Thomas nomination, there was almost no effort to challenge him on ideology. Um, It was, you know, he was, he was about to soar through to the nomination um, until the, the Hill allegations came to light. So it just merely makes me think about like in the context of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings happening now, where she's very, very careful, having learned from the Bork experience, which is now absolutely like the linchpin of conservative legal theory is like, don't express a view because you can be challenged for it. And that's what Bork did. Bork taught the right that they need to make sure that their Supreme Court, their future Supreme Court nominees do not get on the record on some of these crucial legal theories. And Amy Coney Barrett in her hearings, if you watch her, she did she did what Bork didn't refuse to do. Bork was very honest in his hearings and Biden did a great job of drawing him out about kind of where, what the implications of his thinking were. And Coney Barrett just would not be drawn. She was like, nope, I'm not nope. going to speculate. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to identify. And so I think even though we're probably the legal theorizing of Amy Coney Barrett and Robert Bork are probably quite similar from what we can understand from her reading. Um, she has learned the lesson from uh, Bork's, uh, from Joe Biden's success at squashing the Bork, uh, the Bork hearing. So just really lots going on in this period of Biden's life that just feels really resonant to today. 
Yeah, it's fascinating to to hear the story uh, uh, about Neil Kinnock's speech in particular and the plagiarism allegations because I didn't know that he had attributed it uh, to Neil Kinnock in the past and that it was sort of a, a gaffe that he didn't that time. It, it always sort of comes out as, as much more uh, deliberate. So that's really interesting to hear. Um, and the fact that he had that operation, which sort of, you know, affected him as well is, and, and it was just another sort of real tragic thing he had to overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a man who has had a lot of obstacles in his life. For sure. Staten Island, sort of these outer boroughs. But in the 19, late 1970s and 1980s, he starts to focus more on Manhattan, um, but also starts to sort of venture out of uh, the city of New York and ends up uh, opening his first casino in Atlantic City, uh, New Jersey, which opened in 1984, I believe. Now, um, he sort of overextends himself there. Trump has no real experience running casinos. (laughs) Um, And he sort of gets involved with some shady figures, including a, a helicopter business, which might have had connections to the mafia. Um, and it sort of spirals out of control for him. And by 1990, he can't pay, uh, the $73 million mortgage on the Trump Castle Casino Resort by the Bay, nor can he pay the contractors for the new Trump, which is opening. Um, now these payments, um, totaled more than one mil, one billion in bonds in 1991, and they were coming due every 90 days. Um, So by February of 1990, Trump had quit paying many of his personal bills. Uh, Now, nearly 100 vendors at the Trump Taj Mahal in 1991 took legal action to protect themselves because they sort of saw the writing on the wall. Um, And the Division of Gaming Enforcement, which uh, in New Jersey had really sort of long ignored Donald Trump's shadier the shadier aspects of his dealing and i'm not just talking about the illegal ones but sort of the accounting uh, ones as well because uh, to own a, a a casino in new jersey or to even work at a casino in new jersey you had to have an impeachable unimpeachable uh personal uh record and uh you know you had to be of good moral fiber and i mean it's they were very strict with the people who sort of worked at the casinos they turned a little bit of a blind eye to Donald Trump because he had invested so much money into Jersey City that one phrase that came up in my research, which was interesting in relation to Donald Trump and casinos, was too big to fail. Um, so there was this notion among some of the political actors in New Jersey, because keep in mind that the gaming board is a political appointment, that the casino empire was just too big. Uh, to to let go, but this was a crisis, and uh, you know Trump said that he was worth 1.5 billion, uh, but an independent audit uh, of his uh, finances by an accounting firm found that he was actually worth negative 295 million dollars. Whoa, that's that's a lot of nothing. <laughs> yes. That's a lot of nothing. Um, there was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, where I believe the first line of it was, you might be richer than Donald Trump. Wow. It stuck with him. He never forgave that line. Um, so he had, he had a lot of, of debt 
related to these casinos tied up in a lot of banks, um, including big New York banks, which offered him uh, $60 million to avoid a fire sale of his assets, which you know would have been damaging to them too, because these banks want to get repaid. Now, the problem was that he had money tied up in foreign banks and smaller banks uh, there in New Jersey. And they, they were saying, no, we don't want to go along with this. And if all of the banks wouldn't go along with it, none of them would, because they all wanted to assume that sort of level of risk. The enforcement report uh, in 1991 uh, shows that Trump owed uh, $3.2 billion, um, and uh, the Gaming Commission finally determined that, uh, you know, they were trying to save these casinos. You know, I mean, this, these were massive employers. You have to keep in mind, like, the, the, the whole Atlantic City economy was wrapped up in the casino industry, and in the 1980s and early 1990s, that meant being wrapped up in Donald Trump. Um and so uh, the Gaming Commission determined that the banks could indeed foreclose on the properties, um, giving them the legal right to do so, but that the gaming license would not transfer with those properties, which meant that essentially uh, these banks would be foreclosing on just big empty buildings. Because if you don't have the license to operate the casino, these buildings aren't worth half as much as, as they would have been. So the banks decided to strike a deal with Trump, and he did get the $60 million. Uh, um, and in 1991, Trump Taj Mahal went into bankruptcy. Uh, this is really, really important, and it's important to the president that this distinction is made. Trump Taj Mahal went into bankruptcy, not Donald Trump. This was a business bankruptcy. It was not a personal bankruptcy. Um, and uh, this was the first of six bankruptcies that Donald six. Trump uh, – yes, six, six, um, including a further three in 1992 on his other hotels and casinos. Um, and this was sort of the end of uh, the myth of Donald Trump, the great businessman. Um, you know, he had sort of spent much of the last decade um, building up this idea of him as a self-made tycoon, you know, sort of a modern day uh, Andrew Carnegie. And that myth, really persisted throughout the 1980s up until the Atlantic City casinos went bust. Um, and it starts way back in uh, the early 1970s uh, when uh, in 1976, Donald Trump met uh, a young, beautiful uh, who was in New York City to promote the Montreal Olympics. And her name was Ivana Zelnichkova. Now, Ivana had been married once before. She had married an Austrian man uh, to get Austrian citizenship, so that or an Austrian passport, rather, so that she could uh, – but she didn't have to defect from uh, communist Czechoslovakia because she wanted to return to see her family. She was living in Canada at the time. She met Donald Trump. They married in 1977. Um, Ivana was very glamorous, and she was very important to the Trump brand in the 1980s, not only as sort of the, the beautiful woman on his side, but Ivana became a, a trusted business partner as well. Um, and she was actually the vice president at the Trump Organization and then later became CEO of Trump Castle, uh, which was a hotel casino in Atlantic City. She was CEO of that in her own right. Um, 
so Trump starts to sort of build himself up as this playboy. He's going to clubs. He's, you know, surrounding himself with beautiful women and expensive uh, cars and suits. Um, and really, he starts to exaggerate uh, how much he's worth to sort of build up this image of him. Uh, in 1976, he told the New York Times he was worth 200 million. Um, but uh, tax returns that David K. Johnson had uh uh, obtained at the time showed that he was earning a salary of about a hundred thousand dollars from his father doing well by you know no means is this a poor man um but he might not have been worth as much as he said um which tends to be a uh, a repeating story in the trump <laughs> in, the, in the trump biography but you know there is no doubt that trump was a successful real estate developer that is absolutely true um in 1978 uh the city selected his property uh as the location of the javits center which uh, is is still in use uh, today. And part of that was because Trump was able to ready the property faster than anyone else. Um, he got a $1 million loan from Fred Trump in 1978 to uh, buy and refurbish the Grand Hyatt Hotel. Um, Trump has called this a small loan. Um, but it's uh, important to point out that um, Fred Trump really did a lot more than just loan Donald Trump a uh, million dollars. Um, Fred Trump, along with Hyatt, guaranteed 70 million in construction loan uh, from man manufacturers Hanover Bank. And they did that uh, so that Donald Trump could buy this hotel, they could, he could refurbish it, he could invest in it. Um, because Fred Trump's name had become toxic in New York real estate by this point. Fred Trump was still the CEO, but he couldn't really be involved in a whole lot. Um, he had been involved in a windfall scandal, um, so he basically just signed money at the issue. Uh, Donald Trump didn't have the credit to, to really do uh, the Grand Hyatt project himself. Uh, he could not have done it without his father and without the other uh, investors, including uh, the Hyatt uh money um but he did uh spearhead the project and it was his and it was a great it was a great success um like we said he opened his first casino in atlantic city in 1984 this was the start of what was for a time a successful casino empire in atlantic city and later las vegas um and it looked like trump was going to end up being sort of uh you know, a big name in the gaming industry. Uh, he acquired Mar-a-Lago in 1985, which he still owns. Um, and he acquired the Plaza Hotel in 1988. Um, so, you know, he, he was spreading out. Probably the most famous thing that Trump did in the 1980s, and probably the most uh, important as far as long-lasting legacy culturally and architecturally, is uh, he built Trump Tower. And the story behind Trump Tower is fascinating, um, if uh, frustrating to anyone who loves a bit of historic or artistic preservation. Um, so to build Trump Tower, which um, is, I, I don't think anyone would deny, is an absolutely iconic landmark in Manhattan, um, he had to destroy another iconic landmark. And that was the Bonwit Teller flagship store, which stood at the site the Trump t Tower uh, stands now. Now, the building itself, as far as I can tell, of any great architectural merit or historic merit. But there were two Art Deco statues in the relief, which uh, in July 1980, Preservation News dubbed irreplaceable, um, as well as an entry grill work, which uh, the designer at the time, Otto Tegan, says could not have been misplaced, as Trump says it was. Um, and Trump actually agreed to donate both the grill work and these, uh, the relief to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, and it was this great sort of public relations thing. 
He was with statues that were considered, you know, really fine examples of the Art Deco style um, to the museum. Um, but then he decided it was too expensive, so he just destroyed them. Um, what? He just destroyed them. Like, I mean, just these openly were, I mean, destroyed them? Like Openly destroyed them. I mean, there was no, they, they didn't try to hide it. They just destroyed them. Donald Trump said it was too expensive to... Uh, to try and remove them. I mean, these were massive statues, keep in mind. These were massive, they were part of the building. They weren't just standing there, they were boss relief. Um, their their grill work was over the entranceway, also massive. Um, now he says they, they lost that, but um, the like I said, the, the, the designer of that says that was impossible because I mean, it, it weighed a ton, literally. Uh, so it's not <laughs> like you just misplaced your that? keys. Must have misplaced it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he said that he couldn't afford to to remove them. It was too expensive. He also cited safety concerns as his reasons for not taking more care. Um, he was afraid that limestone chunks would have fallen to the street, injuring people. Uh, the interesting thing about that is there's a quote from Robert Miller, who was an art dealer in New York City, who had a, a gallery that was right across the street from where this construction was happening. And he said, well, that's exactly what happened anyway. Big chunks of limestone did fall. Um, mm. to the street as you were destroying these artworks. So controversy in New York. Um, yeah. And it, it, it sort of is the start of a trend of Donald Trump saying he's going to do something philanthropic or be evidence that he ever actually does it. Um, another example of that comes later in the 1980s uh, when he, he goes on a, a sort of TV uh, press junket tour to promote the art of the deal. And he says he's going to give his royalties um, to, uh, I believe one was multiple sclerosis, but I know the other was an AIDS charity. And there's no evidence that he ever gave the royalties from the art of the deal to a charity. And in fact, he was asked about this in the 2016 campaign, uh, and he would not answer it. Yeah. Um, I mean, David so Farenthold, um, back in the 2016 campaign and, and up to the, pre to the present day from the Washington Post, he's got story after story after story like this of proposed, you know, promised charitable donations that Donald Trump never, never made. I mean, some of them are just shocking. Like he'll, you know, get it, force himself on stage of a charity event claiming that he's uh, that he's going to make a donation and then just doesn't write the check. So, yeah, it's a bit it's a big MO for him. Yeah, I mean, he, well, he likes the good publicity. I mean, and this is an era when Donald Trump is really learning about publicity. Um, the problem is Trump Tower proved to be a lot of bad publicity for him, not only because of the the Art Deco statues not being donated and indeed being destroyed, um, but also because a lot of people thought that it was very garish. It wasn't a particularly beautiful tower, they thought. Um, and that has always driven him up a wall because, you know, he only does the best towers. Um, but um, it was also bad for him because of the way that it was built and who built it. Now, um, this was a time period when a lot of developers in New York were begging the FBI and the federal government to free them from the sort of mob-backed uh, construction firms. Donald Trump was not one of those people. <laughs> Donald Trump just said, screw it, I'll work with the mob. Yeah. And so um, he did. And, and part of that uh, was uh, working with mob-backed uh, concrete firms, um, you know, construction crews, teamsters, because um, the mafia had a lot of control over the labor unions in New York at that time. Um, and unfortunately for him, um, 
well, maybe not unfortunately for him, unfortunately for the workers, uh, the people who built Trump Tower were noted for working without personal protective equipment, despite the fact that asbestos was known to be in the old Bonwit Teller building. Mm-hmm. Um, men were, according to one Trump associate, stripping electric wires with their bare hands. Um, Donald Trump wanted this tower built as quickly as possible. And indeed, that was something that he had learned in the 1970s was he could make money by being really fast and learning to cut corners and uh, wanting things really fast and learning to cut corners became a trademark of, of, of Trump. He's always looking for short. But one of the interesting things about uh, the construction of Trump Tower was that it resulted in some litigation, which wouldn't end until 1998 when he settled a lawsuit for $1.375 million. Um, And that was over the fact that he had not paid uh, his workers Mm. who who built it Um, and that he was paying them when he did pay them. It was less than the union wage. Now, part of the reason Trump was able to do this or thought he was able to do this is because the the construction crews that he had were known as the Polish Brigade. And the Polish Brigade was – it consisted of people who were in the United States illegally from Poland. So illegal immigrants built Trump Tower. um, Of course they did because that's so (laughs) Trump. (laughs) It it is very Trump. I mean there – there is always a story in the Trump family. Just it's, it, it's the same way as the tweets, like I said earlier. <laughs> There's always a Trump. I mean, and and so he he used the labor of illegal immigrants to build Trump Tower, um, but he built Trump Tower, and it stands today, and it is a, a sort of iconic landmark in Manhattan. And he did have a lot of success in the 19th. Um, and so, he really sort of became synonymous with the Reagan era, uh, you know, tycoon wealth uh, sort of image of, 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 you know, trickle down economics and bootstrap. And, you know, he starts making himself out to be the self-made man, uh, which, of course, he wasn't. He grew up in a, a mansion with servants, you know. <laughs> oh. um, but he has a lot of success until... He doesn't. And one of those was in uh, 1983 when he buys the New Jersey General. Mm. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what the hell are the New Jersey Generals? <laughs> well, the New Jersey Generals. What the Generals hell are the New Jersey team. Generals, Skyler? <laughs> yeah, the New Jersey Generals are a football team, or at least they were before Donald Trump. Um, so the New Jersey Generals were part of what was called the United States Football League. Um, which uh, before I started researching Donald Trump's life, I had never heard of. Um, The United States Football League was a professional football league here in uh, the United States, um, as you might have guessed from the name, um, that played spring football. And they were designed to be a competitor to the NFL, but they weren't going to directly the NFL because the USFL was going to play when the NFL was off. Um, David Dixon, uh, this was his idea. He was a sports entrepreneur and he wanted a low cost, low risk league. Uh, and for the most part, that was sort of going as planned. He wanted slow and steady growth. Um, part of what made the USFL so attractive was that again, it played in the spring. So football fans had football all year round, but there were also some innovations in the USFL that, uh, uh, would not adopt at that time, but would go on to adopt later, including uh, instant replay and allowing players to celebrate touchdowns. So the league was sort of building its own reputation distinct from the NFL. Donald Trump comes in and decides that this isn't good enough. Now, the 
uh, USFL had struck deals with ABC and ESPN to broadcast their games. Attendance was good. Things were going um, as planned. And Trump's decided that he wanted to accelerate the growth of this. So he hired Doug Flutie, who was a well-known uh, and very accomplished U.S. football player. Doug Flutie, uh, the thrower of the famous Flutie pass in, yes. I think when he was, I'm, I grew up in near Boston, you know, so Doug Flutie was very big for us. Oh, yeah. So you will know. Uh, and Doug Flutie was very big for Donald Trump, too. Cost him over $2 million, uh, <laughs> which was well over the uh, salary cap <laughs> of USFL players. Because keep in mind, this was supposed to be sort of a low risk, low investment. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to build slow. But Trump wanted more. He wanted more ratings, more prestige. So he organized the other league owners to sue the NFL under antitrust legislation. Um, so this is a man, first of all, the NFL at the time, as it is now, was a massive brand. And so taking on the NFL took some took some courage. Um, but Trump, you know, was he had learned from his father and from Roy Cohen never to back down from a fight and indeed to go on the attack to get what you want. And Trump thought that his football team deserved the same ratings and the same prestige as the NFL enjoyed. So he, he sued under antitrust legislation. And uh, this might come as a shock, but Trump actually won that lawsuit. Um, that's, a, that's a rare lawsuit victory for Trump. He doesn't win a lot of this. It is when a jury found that the NFL had indeed broken antitrust laws by, quote, willfully acquiring and maintaining monopoly power in a market consisting of major league professional football. Unquote. Hmm. So uh, for this victory, Donald Trump uh, and the USFL were awarded the uh, whopping settlement of one dollar, um, <laughs> which uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act automatically tripled so that they got three dollars. Um, <laughs> And it was seen as being a sort of rebuke of the USFL and Donald Trump for wasting the court's time. Basically, the, the thinking being, yes, technically the NFL is in violation of the antitrust law, but the real problem here is that you all aren't being patient and growing your business and allowing the market. Um, so Trump actually lost by winning. Um, he alienated the networks who were integral to the USFL's business because um, they were forced to sp spend money to protect themselves in this litigation. Um, and his desire for quick riches destroyed what could have been a long-term uh, business venture. It went and through the appeals process this, with the USFL. This presumably is why the NFL retains a monopoly on US football. It is, yeah. I mean, you, you could sort of argue, I, I would think that uh, college football which is yeah. something Trump has uh, sort of heralded the return of, I think, over the last few weeks, um, you know, sort of stands as an example of another league. And so you could probably argue that there isn't quite the monopoly that Trump would claim. But, you know, Trump did win the lawsuit. And I think that that's, you know, it's important that, you know, Trump did win, um, even if by winning he lost. Um, which is another sort of pattern that seems to repeat with Donald Trump. Mm. Um, but it is a great example of just how ambitious Donald Trump is, how eager he is. And he is a very impatient man. He wants something, he wants it now. And he's always looking for ways to cut corners to get to where he wants to be. Yeah. Um, and we've seen that throughout his business career into his political career. Um, and then just briefly, I, I think that it needs to be sort of mentioned that this is really the era when Donald Trump became a celebrity. Mm -hmm. This was the era when Donald Trump became 
uh, Donald Trump. You know, before 1980, no one really knew who Donald Trump was outside of sort of New York real estate circles. But throughout the 80s, he began appearing in national media, including, you know, interviews on Donahue and 60 Minutes, which were both big shows then. 60 Minutes still is. Um, and in 1987 is when he becomes a household name uh, with the publication of The Yard of the Deal, which was ghostwritten by Tony Schwartz. Um, in 1988, he begins branding. He puts his name on uh, a series of limousines. That becomes very important because that in the 1990s and into the 2000s, especially, uh, how people make the bulk of his money, not by yeah. actually developing, but by branding it. Um, that and, might be a good point for us to then maybe start to think about moving forward to 2000, yeah. which is our next big year. The choice that voters face in this election is between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Donald John Trump and Joseph Robinette Biden, if you want to say it that way. These are two men of the same generation. They have lived parallel but wildly different lives. Biden's marked by pain and loss at every turn, and an exceptional ambition and determination to overcome the barriers that have been put in his way. Trump's life defined by exceptional privilege and good fortune, but an equal, though very different, sense of drive and ambition. In this two-part series, I am joined by writer and friend of this pod, Skylar Baker Jordan, as we run through in details the lives of each of these two men, dwelling on the moments that defined them and the forces that shaped them. 